Also, um, at the end of today's service, so we've, we've had a pretty good string of a few weeks here. I think two weeks ago we, ba- we had a baptism. Uh, last week we ordained a, a pastor, which, which, which was me. Apparently Rick kept telling me that at his church, which is a monstrous-sized church, they, that the pastor that was ordained would preach that evening. Well, I just preached the week later, so... Um, and I did preach last, that last Sunday evening because youth group. So anyway, um, this week, though, we are going to be ordaining two new elders in uh, Jeff Carson and Austin Tucker, and that'll be at the end of the service. So we are we're really excited about that. All right. What are some things that easily get tangled up in your life? Like, I think about, you know, when I think about being tangled, I, I think about uh, when I bought my first iPod. And iPods used to come with those white earbuds that had the wires and everything. And I traveled a lot, and I would always throw them in my pocket. And it seemed, it didn't matter how hard I tried, but it seemed every time I pulled them out of my pocket, they would look like this. Obviously, they still look like this. I tried to untangle them after first service, and it didn't work. They even put this little plastic piece on here that I think you can do something with, and it's supposed to help it keep it untangled. That doesn't work. I'm just going to put that back in there because they're terrible. I mean, it's a fool's errand. What about Christmas time? Anybody have Christmas lights that you get out and you, you're, you're like, I did this so well last year. I know that they're going to be fine. And then you pull out the ball of lights that you're going to take forever to untangle. Or you're going to get your kid to do it. I don't know. Or you just throw them, like somebody first service is like, oh, yeah, that's when I just throw them away and get new lights. I'm like, that doesn't seem like the fiscally responsible thing to do, but actually I would do the same thing. Actually, I bought a, I bought a tree that was pre-lit, so I didn't have to untangle lights. Now when the lights die on that, I just get a new tree. <laughs> just kidding. Or maybe it's not wires that get tangled. Maybe it's your hair. Not my hair. I keep mine short, but, you know, I, I don't have this problem. But some people, you know, my niece, when she was younger, you know, she'd get out of the shower or go swimming or something, and her hair would be just a tangled mess. And anytime her mom or dad would go after it to brush it out, she would run because that apparently hurts. I wouldn't know. Um, I keep my hair short. Not as short as my father's hair. Um <laughs> Whatever, I have lasted the longest in my family, and we're going until I die. All right. There's so many things, though, that get tangled up in our lives. You know, it's not just physical things, though, right? Like, our lives can get tangled up with many things that at first can seem, you know, not that bad. But over time, they, they've caused us to stumble moving or struggle even moving forward. Some of these things can include bad relationships, making bad decisions about who we hang out with, who influences our lives, who gets to speak into our lives, or bad financial decisions, where we've gotten ourselves into debt, or we're not being generous with our money, or making poor entertainment decisions. You know, we look at things on the internet that we shouldn't look at, or watching shows that might not be the best for you, or listening to music that if we asked you what the lyrics were in church, you'd be like, I'll I'll wait until after we leave church, and then I'll tell you. 
or we get into arguments over silly things uh, like political issues, and we're not having civil conversations anymore. We're not having debates, you know, where we disagree with somebody. We we get into arguments, and and you know, the, with people that are on our opposite sides. And there's so many more things. And if I listed them all, we'd be here all day. The Bible calls the things that we get all tangled up in our lives as sin. Sin is the stuff in our lives that keep us from living lives fully devoted to the Lord. It's what drives us to desire the things that are not of God. Sin happens when we know the right thing that God wants us to do, and then we choose not to do it. We choose to do the opposite. It is so easy to get tangled up in sin, even when we don't want to. It can be like those Christmas lights. You know, you, you, you try to be neat and perfect with packing them away, and you're just not quite there, and then all of a sudden, next year when you go decorate, you've got a ball of lights to untangle. And like those lights, you try and keep yourself walking the straight and narrow path, but sometimes you commit just what seems to be only a, a little thing, just a small little sin, and, and maybe another, and then it starts to compound on you. And then it's a constant struggle to keep fighting that sin. And then sometimes we find out that, you know, we're not really struggling anymore against that sin. We're not putting up the fight. And that's when we get so tangled up. And it's going to take a lot of time to untangle it. However, we don't need to fight this alone. We don't need to try and muster up all of our strength in order to fight against the sin that gets entangled in our lives and causes us to stumble or fall. In the New Testament, in the Bible, one writer says that there is a better way to run the race of life, a way that we want to look at today. So if you've got your Bible, you've got a Bible app on your phone, if you turn with me to the book of Hebrews, we're going to be in chapter 12. A little background on the book of Hebrews. The author of this book, we, we don't know, it's an anonymous book, but there is a debate on who it could have been. One popular opinion is that it is the Apostle Paul, that he wrote this, and I think there have been some good arguments for this take. Although, if you look at his other New Testament writings, there are some differences in how they are written, and so that leads other people to believe that it's unlikely that it's Paul. There are a number of other people who have been put forward, but really none have a strong candidacy on this, so it's probably best that we just remain that the author is anonymous. Now, the audience, though, we've got a pretty good idea on because the audience was likely a Jewish Christian audience with references to the Old Testament and well-constructed arguments demonstrating Jesus as being greater than some of the things that were very important in the Old Testament and in Judaism, like angels and Moses, the high priest, and sacrifices. And while this was a letter that was written to and, and sent to churches, many believe that it was originally a sermon. And then it was sent around. And I personally believe that this is the case. You know, our small group did this, uh, studied Hebrews. And one of the things that a study guide that I had suggested that you do is to read Hebrews out loud to yourself. It takes about 20 minutes. And so I did that. And I couldn't help but, like, get the preacher voice going while I was doing that. And, and it reads so much like a sermon. Like, it could preach today. We could, I could sit up here and read Hebrews to you, and it would sound just like a normal sermon. It takes about 20 minutes or so to read through it, and you can hear that it reads different than the other letters. And so as we turn to Hebrews chapter 12, I want to start with another question. Who is it that you admire in your lives? And, and think about why you admire them. Is it somebody in your family? 
that you admire, that, that's spoken into your life, somebody who has been a mentor or who has discipled you, who has led you. You know, for myself, my mom and dad, my brother, and, and Pastor Rick, they are all, uh, you know, through their faith and their love of Jesus, you know, they've all done a lot in my lives, in my life. Um, now, maybe for you, it's not somebody in your family, or maybe it is somebody in your family, but maybe there's somebody beyond your family as well. You know, books that you've read, you, you've, uh, you know, found wisdom from other sources. Well, today we want to look at some people that we can admire. And we start in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. We're, we're just going to read the first little part of this, where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses... Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witness. Now, who is the author talking about? Who is this great cloud of witnesses? So to understand that, we need to look back one chapter in chapter 11, which speaks to the faith of many Old Testament heroes. And it begins with a definition of what faith is, because that's what this whole chapter is about, is their faith. Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 2 says, Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. The writer then proceeds to take the reader through amazing examples of faith, beginning with Abel and continuing with Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites as a whole as they passed through the Red Sea during the Exodus or when they marched around the city of Jericho and its walls came down. Rahab, Even more who go unnamed and yet were martyred, were killed because of their faith. These great people who demonstrated faith in the Lord are the great cloud of witnesses that this author writes about in Hebrews chapter 12. Now the author doesn't use witness here as if they're watching you. But as one commentator puts it, they're witnesses in the sense that they bear witness to the Christian community of God's faithfulness and of the effectiveness of faith. So they are examples of faith, and that God is faithful to fulfill his, his promises. They are amazing examples of faith for the Jewish Christians in the first century, and when this letter was written. And these people are still examples of faith for us today. Not that they were perfect. They had flaws. They had missteps. I mean, included in this list are Gideon, who wanted to test the Lord. Noah, who after he got off the ark, grew a vineyard and got knocked out drunk. Um, Samson, who pretty much did everything against his role as a judge of Israel. And David, who even though he was probably the greatest king of Israel, committed adultery and murder. And yet, even with all those flaws, they were commended for their faith. Now we need to look back to people of faith as well. The author of Hebrews uses the analogy of running a race for the Christian life. And so, to run that race well, to even just to start it well, we need to look back at those who have already run that race and run it well. We look back to the Old Testament heroes of the faith, just like the author does here. But we are fortunate because we also have the New Testament. And we can see people, we have new heroes of the faith, like the apostles who by faith follow Jesus and who most, by faith, were executed for that. 
We can also look to those throughout the 2,000 years since the completion of the New Testament, those who live by faith. And just a small handful of an example, people like Martin Luther, Hudson Taylor, Justin Martyr, Dwight L. Moody, Billy Graham, and so many more. Again, these people aren't perfect. They had flaws. But honestly, I find that encouraging. So since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we run our race. But to run that race, we we can't be weighed down by anything. As a youth pastor, one of the things that I try and do to support our students in their school, and it is to support our students in their school or extracurricular activities. I've had the opportunity to go some, to some really fun things over the years, and some that were fine. <laughs> one of the activities I was able to attend over the past few years with one of our students who graduated last year were cross-country and track events, which were good. Um, and Luke, who's volunteering and, and runs our, our sound mix, he's running it today, um, he ran cross-country in the distance-running track events. And one of the things that you notice when you watch these athletes run is that they, of course, don't run with tons of layers on. Most of the time, it's tank top and shorts. Both are super lightweight. And I'm pretty sure their shoes would have as little weight on them as possible just to make sure they didn't have a lot of burden. I mean, that's why they do this, right? When you're running a long race, you don't want to add any extra burdens to weigh you down. You want to go as light as possible. And the same is true when we run the race of the Christian life. This race is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so we need to heed the words of the writer of Hebrews as we continue in verse 1. Again, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. What is it that hinders your race? What sin do you find so easily gets you all tangled and tripped up? Is it something that you've struggled with for years and you just can't quite shake it? Maybe something like anger, jealousy, gossip, pride, or more. Maybe you continue to deal with sexual sins that weigh on you. Maybe it's not a sin that's hindering you, but it's still something that's just weighing you down. Maybe it's a hobby that you take up that that is not a bad thing in itself, but it's leading you to, to neglect time with your family or even takes away time from reflecting on God's word. Maybe it's a weight that, you know, if you're constantly watching the news and you just feel this pressure or you're on social media on the time, all the time and you feel a pressure, that weight... Maybe it's something that you've just never given over to the Lord. That you, you want to try and figure out on your own, and so you're holding on to it, thinking you can take care of it yourself, when maybe if you give that over to God, it can lift that heavy burden from you. There are burdens that each of us carries, sins that we all need to deal with. These are the things that we need to throw off to make ourselves as light as possible so that we're able to run a marathon of a race. You know, next week I'll be up in Speedway for a little race called the Indy 500. About three and a half hours, 33 drivers are going to run their cars for 500 miles at an average of 215 miles an hour. Having grown up in Speedway, I lived across the street from the track, it is one of my favorite places to be. And while it's not an endurance race like some that run for 24 hours or for 12 hours, these drivers still need to drive for 500 miles at breakneck speeds in order to win the race. 
one of the four-time winners of the 500, Rick Mears, when he was asked about winning the race, would always start by looking at the first lap, even the first turn. Because he always says, you can't win the race in the first turn. Meaning there's no point in making a bad decision that's going to take you out of the race on the opening lap. So the driver's got to run all 200 laps to win that race. Oftentimes, you can make a small mistake, you can give up positions early and recover. There have been many times where drivers have been patient and their strategy has resulted in a win. Well, the same thing is true for the race the Christian runs in their lifetime. Finishing off verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run with perseverance. The word perseverance could also be translated as endurance. It relates to running the race with steadfastness, where you delay the gratification until the race is completed. In order to run this race well, you've got to run with endurance in mind. Understanding that's for the long haul. You can't win it in the first turn. And so we prepare. We prepare. We start by looking back to those who have traveled this race and done this race before by faith. And then we lighten our load from all the burdens, the sins that weigh us down. And we continue to train every day to improve our pace, our technique, our endurance. It's like that couch to 5K plan, which apparently works, but I only got like two weeks into it because I don't like running because it's silly. But what does this look like, though, in the Christian's life? It's obedience to God's word day after day, year after year. It's making decisions based on God's direction and his word, choosing to live in righteousness instead of sin every day. And to do this, we need to read and be in God's word every day. And if we have to start small, then start small. But grow in endurance over time. The more you do it, the more you will be used to it. It also means that we spend a lot of time in prayer over our lives, asking God to lead us, to give us the strength to keep going. So many times we, we start to feel like we're fading when we need to refuel, and we do that by going to the Lord because he will fill us up. The race is laid out before us. And then finally, we look toward the finish line. Hebrews twelve two. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Of course, every race has a finish line. Most races, you know where that line is. For the cross-country runners, it was after three laps and about three miles, a little over three miles. For the Indy 500, it's 200 laps and 500 miles. But for the Christian well, we really don't know how long our race is going to be. It could last for many years, or it could end sooner than we think. But there will be a finish line. And that finish line, there stands our Savior. The writer of Hebrews describes Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. As one commentator puts it, the word author 
It, it, it's translated, it's rich with meaning, and can communicate variously the idea of a champion, a leader, a forerunner, or an initiator, or all of them. He's also the perfecter of our faith, which describes how Jesus brings our faith to its intended goal. And this is why we need to look to him to throw off the things of the world that hinder us, the sin that we have become tangled in. Similar to the heroes of the faith in Hebrews 11, Jesus is also one who we look to, but he can do more because he can give us endurance in the faith. He is the supreme example of endurance in faith. As one writer puts it, Jesus is able to strengthen his followers to endure because he is the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God and awaits their cry for help. Jesus is our ultimate example for endurance of faith because he endured the cross. His sacrificial death on our behalf on the cross clears the roadblocks from our race. It doesn't make it easy, but we know the path. He is the path. The cross was one of the most shameful forms of execution. It was saved for slaves and criminals. As he hung on the cross, Jesus was mocked and ridiculed. And yet, as the author of Hebrews says, he scorned the shame of the cross. He flipped it on its head because of the joy set before him. The joy of fulfilling the plan of God's redemption and Jesus' exaltation. And so, look to Jesus. He is the finish line. He's the whole race. Throw off everything that hinders you from reaching him. Get untangled from sin, from whatever is keeping you separated from God. Run your race well, but keep your eyes on Jesus. Like I said, today is another special day in our church body, and today we appoint and ordain two new elders in Jeff Carson and Austin Tucker. In the New Testament book of Acts, we see elders being appointed to lead the early churches. And so we seek, as a New Testament Christian church, to follow this model. The elders provide oversight to the body of Christ as shepherds for this congregation. The task of leading the church as an elder and deacon, it's a big one. It should not be taken lightly. The Bible gives a clear imperative of the person who will serve in this capacity in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where Paul writes to Timothy, Here is a trustworthy saying, If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. As an elder, you are called to a higher calling than others in this church. And so, Jeff and Austin, we call you to live up to that calling. Remember, you are leading the church that Christ loved and died for. 
This leadership, though, begins in your own homes. And so as a reminder, your families need to remain the highest on the list of your priorities. To the congregation, as we appoint these new leaders, we continue to need your prayers for us as we lead this church. Leadership in the church can be a heavy burden, and it can suffer many attacks from the enemy. And so please, continue to keep your elders, pastors, and staff in your prayers, especially our elder candidates as they join us. And so now I ask our elder candidates, Jeff and Austin, to stand. And I'm going to have you guys come to the middle because I had to do it last week. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you guys three questions. Family feud. Yeah. No. <laughs> this is a solemn affair. <laughs> Rick warned me, man. <laughs> I was like, we're going to get through it. We'll be fine. Notice he's not here. I know. <laughs> I know. All right. So let me ask you these questions. Do you men wish to be set apart as elders in this church? Do you promise to be faithful to God's word? Do you promise to encourage the people, follow the leadership of the elder elders and ministers in this church? Now I'm going to read to you the charge given by the Apostle Peter to his fellow elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through 4. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be. Not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those who, uh, you are, who have been entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive a crown of glory that will never fade away. So I'm going to have you guys kneel, and I'm going to have our elders come up. I'll back up. Go out just a little bit. He's just so helpful, isn't he? <laughs> so as our elders come forward and they lay hands on these men as we ordain them as elders here at Maple Grove, I'm going to pray. If you would pray with me. Father, you know our hearts. You know the needs of this congregation. We believe that you have guided us in our selection of these men, and we ask that your spirit would empower them for the ministries you have assigned to them here. Work through them to do your will, to shepherd and lead this congregation. Be their constant companion. We commit them to your service as elders in this church. Lord, give us the wisdom to determine what should be done, the courage to begin, and the strength to finish. Protect us from division and strife, but grant harmony and peace. May repetition not make us indifferent, nor habit tempt us to offer you less than our best. 
Rather, may our sacrifice of time and effort be worthy of him who sacrificed his all for the church. Thank you, Father, for considering us faithful and calling us to this service. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you would help welcome our new elders. Please do continue to pray for them and all the leadership here at Maple Grove and the staff. Jeff and Austin should be out in the foyer. I'm telling them this now. Should be out in the foyer um, (laughs) after the service so you can take some time to talk and encourage them as they take over this, uh, this big, big role in this church. And now, if you would stand with us as we sing our our hymn of invitation. Mm